Let's now direct our attention to the Word of God. Is there a very marked echo in this sound? Yeah, it's just, if we work on that a little bit as I read, I'll appreciate it. James, the brother of our Lord, his letter to the churches, beginning chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things that we noted last week as we began our study of the letter of James to the churches of the early Christian generation, the first generation of Christians, that James in this particular book has one subject kind of after another. In fact, Alec Motier in his commentary on the book of James says that it's almost like the preacher who preaches a sermon and someone comes up to him after and says, do you have that in written form? And the pastor says, well, no, I don't, and I really am not able to kind of redo it so that the spoken word is put into written language and it really becomes a different presentation. And then finally the person will say, well, pastor, do you at least have your notes that we can see? And they says, well, I don't use a lot of notes, so I don't really have a lot of notes. Well, can you at least give us the essence, the summary, a synopsis of that sermon? And that's really what we have in the book of James, is one after another of the small synopses of the sermons that James, who, by the way, from uh, the mid-30s A.D. until 62 A.D., a period of about 25 years, uh, was the bishop of the church at Jerusalem. We find him in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. He presides there. He's the president of the elder council that meets there, and we see that uh, the Lord himself appeared to James, that Paul met one-on-one with James early in his ministry, and so we see something of the character of the man who's writing here. Now, if there's any time between what we saw last week where he talked about the various trials that, that come our way, which are tests, and we are to bear them, we are to endure under them, and we're to recognize them as the things that build our character and build our faith. If there's any connection, it'd be this little word, lack. You'll notice it appears there, he says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then he moves into the next verse, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. It's interesting the way he puts that because it's almost like, well, let's look around and see who lacks wisdom and who doesn't. Maybe some of us don't lack in any way wisdom. Well, I don't think we'd find anyone among us who is without any lack. 
The shortfall of wisdom in our lives is noted just about every day. By the way we live, by the decisions we make, by the mistakes we make, by the stumblings and the fallings. In fact, this is a little device that James uses in the language. In another place later on, he's going to say, uh, if any of you are sick, if any of you are suffering. And the real telltale, he'll say, if someone has committed a sin, is there anyone who has not sinned? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everyone sins and everyone lacks wisdom. Now, wisdom in the Old Testament is seen as that skill. It's not the accumulation of theoretical and philosophical knowledge, although there is a need, of course, to have some content to what we know, but wisdom is a skill. In other words, it's to be utilized in practical daily living, and that's what wisdom is. It's the skill of daily living. In fact, the one who is most associated with wisdom anywhere in the Old Testament is King Solomon. You remember back in 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to go, let me just turn there and read that episode that happened in the life of ancient Israel. Now you remember David, of course, was the first king of the United Kingdom and, and ruled for about 40 years. And then his son, young, young son, the second child of Bathsheba, ascended to the throne at David's own selection. And as, as, as King Solomon, a young man, came to the throne, this is what the scriptures say, the, the, uh, the writer in King says, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. And it says here that he met with the Lord, and the Lord appeared to him in a dream and asked him, what would he like to have? In other words, the Lord, who is the giver of gifts, as James will tell us in a moment, is going to bestow a royal bestowal upon King Solomon. That's why we know that Solomon was in the divine line of kings, because the father always bestowed upon the son all the things that he would need in terms of wealth and power and prestige and implements and military force and economic capacity and all everything that a king would need to rule the father would bestow it upon him so here we have the heavenly father bestowing upon the chosen son king solomon whatever he asked for and so this is the way the conversation went this is the way solomon responded he said give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great people? In other words, he asked literally for wisdom. That's what Solomon wanted from the Lord. And this pleased the Lord, it says in verse 10, that Solomon had asked this. And the Lord said, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I will do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and a discerning mind so that none like you has been, uh, be ever been before and none like you shall arise after you. Now that was the Lord's presentation to Solomon. And Solomon was granted great wisdom. And here's the testimony of the people. The last 
verse of, of that chapter, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Of course, we know that Solomon is a type of Christ in so many ways. He's the young prince of peace. That's what the word Solomon means. Shalom, it means peace. He's the prince of peace. And of course, Christ fulfills that ultimately and finally and completely. So what is being presented before us here when we think of wisdom, and um, just let me mention this one thing, which is kind of interesting, I think. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes, is uh, the word means the preacher. It literally means the convener of an assembly. And I have a theory based upon some, I think, pretty good uh, sketches of, of the Old Testament life that one of the things that made Solomon well-known was not only had God granted him wisdom, but he would convene from time to time an assembly of wise men and women. And he would bring them in, not only from his kingdom, but from the kingdoms around the world. And he would have, as it were, a conference, a great convocation of, of wisdom. And out of that came the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, especially the Proverbs. Were, were the collected wisdom, not only of King Solomon himself, of original authorship by the Spirit of God, but also others participated and came to, to bring together this collected wisdom. And it covers a wide range of subjects, many of which will be covered in this book. It talks about wealth and riches and, and, and uprightness, morality, and, uh, and power and authority. A lot of things are covered in the book of Proverbs. So it is to the Proverbs that we have. In fact, some have even referred to it. It's in the notes there of the ESV that the book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the interesting thing to me is that James, the brother of Jesus, will expound in almost every case all of his thematic material comes from the lips of Jesus himself. In fact, this very passage we have today where he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of the Lord. Let him ask God. Asking God is simply praying. And Jesus himself had said in the Sermon on the Mount, and no doubt over and over many times, and James audited many of those things, even though the scriptures tell us he probably wasn't a believer in the full person and work of Christ until the accomplishment of the cross and the resurrection but he nevertheless heard the Lord. And he heard the Lord say, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And he'll have more to say later as he goes through this book about asking. But it is asking God for that which you need. And it's interesting the way he phrases the way the Lord will, will give. He characterizes the gracious God. And that's our title, is the gracious wisdom of the Lord, the gift. The word grace means gift. The bestowal of wisdom that comes from the Lord upon those who ask for it. Now, specifically, if we are to tie the, the, the previous passage to this one at all, it would be like, what kind of wisdom? We're looking for the kind of wisdom that it takes to get through the fiery trial. 
That's the kind of wisdom we're looking for. In the words of Thomas Manton, the uh, Puritan writer, he says, what is this wisdom? Well, this wisdom is in the first place the discernment of God's end. That is, we need to try to discern what is God trying to do with this trial and this temptation or this episode in our life. What is the will of God in this matter? The Lord himself said if we ask anything according to his will, we are heard and prayers are answered. In the second place, this kind of wisdom is that ability, that skill to know the nature of the affliction. Is this affliction a test of our faith and of our trust in the Lord? The Lord did that to Job. He did that to Abraham. Well-known episodes of trial and testing to test their faith. To see what the long-term character of their faith would be. We know that Job reached despair. We know that Abraham laughed and doubted. But that was the temporary, short-term character of their faith. The long-term character of their faith was, the Bible says in Hebrews, that Abraham believed God not wavering, not vacillating. So we need to discern the skill in discerning the nature of the affliction. Manton says that it's also a wisdom that finds out our duty. In other words, where do we have an obligation to behave or to do something in a certain way. It takes skill. It takes not only an understanding of the commandments of God, but what is the proper application and what constitutes obedience to those commandments. That's the secret to living. If God puts out a commandment, what, what's the essence of the commandment? What is he trying to do? What, what, how is he trying to to get us to live our lives and to behave? What is God's movement toward our improvement spiritually? That takes discernment. That takes skill. That takes wisdom from on high. And that's to be the subject matter of prayer. Manton also points out that this wisdom, and I love this phrase, this is only someone writing in 1693 (laughs) would use this phrase. It's beautiful. This wisdom is to moderate the violence of our own passions. (laughs) To moderate the violence of our own passions. We tend to to be reactive. We tend to be volatile. We tend to be emotional. We tend to be irrational. And one of the worst things that ever happens to us is we become too rational and reason and think. We become double minded. We look this way and on the other hand we look that way. We want to do this. We want to do that. And that is a violation of the faith. That's what James calls here someone that is double-minded. It's literally a word that James made up. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the, in the scriptures. It's, it's a compound word, the word di or die, which means two, and then the word psuche, di psuche, which means soul. In other words, double-souled. And, and if there's anything that the Lord implores us to do in the ethical teaching of Scripture is to be devoted, to be focused, to be single-minded, 
to love the Lord with all our hearts and with all our souls and mind, strength. And so that's what James is urging us to do. He's collecting together the urgencies and the imperatives of Scripture. Um, we really emphasize in our preaching, and rightly so, grace, that we are unworthy, we are sinners, we're unfit, and we need the grace of God in our life for forgiveness of sins, for all of the rescue and all of the redemption and the restoration that God does by the finished work of Christ and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a historical finished work that Christ accomplished, but there's a continuing, ongoing, current work that the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God, is accomplishing in our lives. He's begun a good work in us, and He's going to complete it. And These works of God are bestowals. They are they're gifts that God gives. We ask and we receive. James will later say, you don't have it because you didn't ask for it. You have not because you ask not. And we're to ask God for this skill, this ability, this capacity to hear and to obey and to not let the emotions of our hearts, that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the weakness and the feebleness of our carnal nature to override and overcome. This is a skill. This takes some, some thought, this takes some dedication and some devotion. And if you ask for this skill, if you ask for this capacity, the scripture says that the Lord will give it to you. If you lack it, he will give you this. Isn't that wonderful? To know that the Lord will give us that which we, which we lack. Uh, the great saints have always sort of held to the view that what the Lord commands, he gives the ability to perform in the ethical realm of our, of our Christian living. And that's where James is pushing us. Now, a couple of things about this is kind of interesting. I'll point out here. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. And the word is literally singly. He gives without any uh, extraneous um, diversion. God pours it into us almost if you think of a funnel it's like a funnel where the Lord's mercies and grace and gifts are poured in at the top and they come right into our souls, focused in a single path. And that's what that word generously means. It also means lavishly, of course, and it's come to mean that it is a lavish giving. There is an, an infinite quality in God in everything He has and He's able to impart to us a finite portion. He gives grace. He giveth more grace. He gives us grace for every need. That's what we ask. That's what we need. If you're facing a particular circumstance, people that have received a very negative diagnosis from their doctors begin, should begin to pray for dying grace. There is living grace and there's dying grace. And, and all of these gifts come from the Lord and they, they can be asked for and can be received. It says that God gives generously to all. It's not just a select few. One of the things James will do will be level the ground. Later on he'll talk about how Elijah was a person. Elijah was a man just like us. My goodness, if there's anybody in the Bible that wasn't like us, it's Elijah. <laughs> this man was powerful in the Spirit of God. But James says he was just like us in the sense that 
He asked God and God gave it to him. And he says that prayer should be like that. It's to be a fervent prayer, an effectual prayer. And God gives to all. If he'll give to Elijah, James says, he'll give to us. He'll give to you. He'll give to me. There's no partiality and respecter of persons with God when it comes to the bestowal of his gift, his gift of wisdom. It says he gives to all without reproach. I like that root word that's behind that. And really what it means, it, it, uh, I like the King James where it says, the Lord gives and upbraideth not. Do we know what upbraideth mean? It means, and this is, this is precious to me, this truth here. And that is that God gives without the lecture. In other words, God doesn't give and say, well, what happened to the gift I gave you last time? God gives and says, well, well why are you so feeble that you have to have this much grace? God doesn't give and say, you know you don't deserve it. And you can list a whole number of things that from a human standpoint we could think all the strings and all of the things that we connect to our gifts, all of the, all of the limitations that we put upon it. The Lord knows we're unworthy. He knows our frame. He knows we're feeble. He knows we've probably even asked amiss. We've asked in vain. But He gives without the lecture. He gives without the upbraid, without the, with, without the uh, uh, rebuke alongside it. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that precious to know that's how the Lord deals with us? Because we know we have it coming. <laughs> we know, but the Lord just gives it. Some of you probably have had to give to your children and help them with a car payment or you know, something like that. And you're like, well, here's what you do, you know, in order to pay me back or do, you know, and I expect you to, and, and of course there's, there's legitimacy to that from time to time. We have to be very responsible and corrective and instructive, and the Lord certainly is, but it is just giving us. We need it, we ask for it, He has it, He gives it. He says, if you'll ask like this, it'll be given to you. Then he puts a stark contrast. But let's ask, let him ask in faith. And this is the lesson of faith now that sort of winds this up. And that is that you are to be asking for wisdom with the believing heart. You're not to be like the double-minded man. Neither are you to be like the sea. All of the billows and the waves and the churning, the eddy currents and the undertoes and the swirls and the ebbs and the flows of the sea. But instead it is to be single-minded faith. One of the commentators that I was reading says that our main thing that we lack in faith is we really don't believe God has the power or the ability to give us what we want. And he said that's the severest form of disrespect to the Lord. We're all comfortable, I think, with the notion of God's will. We want God's will to be done. And we know that God will sovereignly do His will. But do we doubt? Do we falls short of our real faith, our belief that God actually can do it. I think one of the greatest challenges in the face 
of this particular point for us in the Presbyterian and Reformed branch of the church is that we don't really trust God for healing, physical and emotional healing. There are other branches of the Christian church that have gone to seed and gone into heresy in a doctrine of healing and and divine healing and divine healers. We know that. And sometimes we react in the other direction. But he says, I am the Lord. I'm the healer of your diseases. And God heals us. I recently had a tremendous vexation of uh, a physical affliction that afflicted me for months. And it just got worse and worse. And I finally, finally went to the medical doctor. And the medical doctor gave me a prescription. But it just so happened that the couple of days before that, uh, before I started using the prescription, I went to see my cousin uh, in Tennessee who is, has a brain tumor and they say will probably not live too many more weeks. And she's exactly the same age as my younger brother who passed away five years ago of cancer. And so I, I just had to be with her. She's like a sister to me. And while I was there, I visited with her sister, my cousin as well, obviously. And uh, she had some, some alternative things that she did by way of counseling, by way of asking some real simple questions about, about my attitudes and about some stresses and some, some things that I was working on, just real simple uh, practice of an alternative kind of an approach to uh, health and wholeness. And she worked with me for about an hour and a half. And the next day, when I got back home, I applied the medicine that the doctor had prescribed. And the next day, I'm sorry, I, my whole point I mentioned, I, and I prayed fervently. I began to pray fervently that the Lord would heal me. I said, this has gotten beyond. I hadn't even thought about praying for healing before. Isn't that something? Isn't that pitiful? All the, you know, I just, you know, this is something that the doctor can take care of. This is something that medicine can take care of. This is something I have to live with. This is just, this will go away soon. So my, you know, and, and, and I, I just said, Lord, you've got to deliver me. I'm, I've got to have healing in this matter. On the, the day I applied the medicine was the day after I, my cousin worked with me, which was the day after I had prayed, <laughs> the thing abated. It just disappeared. An awful affliction. And so I said, I don't know what did it. Was it my prayer? The Lord miraculously delivered me in a matter of about 48 hours? Or was it the work of my cousin in, in, in helping me deal with some emotional things in my life? Or was it the medicine that I took? I don't know, but it's gone. All I know is I was in bad shape and now I'm healed. And so I kind of wondered, why did I do that? Why didn't I run a scientific test and, you know, control the experiment, try this, and then see how, and then try something else, and then, you know, cover all three things done within about a three-day period, and the Lord delivered at the end of the process. And then I began to think, I think that's how the Lord heals us. I think he just uses all sorts of stuff. He uses doctors, medicine. 
He uses counselors. And he uses his own divine power to just effect that which is limited. And his spirit then breathes upon that which is normal, mundane, scientific, and rational and supersedes it all with his divine mercy. And I think we need to start praying more in faith, believing that God has the power and use the means that are available that God directs us to. That's wisdom. That's wisdom to, to be able to navigate through that. And we need the Lord to help us navigate through it in every area of life. It may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be financial, it may be relational. There's just any number of ways in which we get vexed by life and the trials and the temptations come. And wisdom, the essence of wisdom, is finding that pathway through it. And I can't stop this sermon without mentioning one little thing. Do you know that in the Scriptures, I'll just quote one little passage here. Listen to Paul talking to the church at Colossae. I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. In other words, Paul's talking about his concern for the churches and all of the things that they're going through. And the people, this is a pastor's heart bleeding for his people that they may deal with everything. Now listen to that, he says, to the riches, that's where the gift comes from, we get everything according to the riches that God has in Christ Jesus. But listen to the, the passage, he says, full riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. <laughs> I'd never noticed that before. The mystery, the mysterion, that which is in ancient Greek was considered kind of the ultimate secret behind all the secrets, is Christ, Paul says. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. And He will give you wisdom. Christ. 